Welcome to the Rise of the Challenge podcast. Join me today. He's a retired cosmetic surgeon, former emergency physician, author, and mountain climber. It's Robert Yoho. How are you doing today, Robert? Thank you for the nice introduction, Alex. <laughs> I'm a former mountain climber. Yeah, I'm a retired <laughs> mountain climber. I'm, I'm great. And it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. We're so excited to have you on the show to talk about your rise to the challenge. What we like to do with all of our guests is go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what were you involved in growing up? Okay, well, I came from a small town in Ohio, and I, I mean, this is a funny genesis because because I was interested in uh, climbing uh, from my undergraduate and my even my high school on. I always dreamed of coming to the West Coast where there are better better mountains and better cliffs. So, <laughs> so that's what I did. I managed to uh, get uh, my postgraduate training in California, and I've been here. I don't know, for 35 years or something like that. I guess I'm grandfathered in, you know, I mean, there, there are advantages and disadvantages, but uh, you know, it's, it's been, it's been a great run so far. Living in the Midwest, did you like the outdoors and that's where you kind of found that passion with climbing or the outdoors, mountain cliffs, things like that? We, we had, we had some things we could, uh, which city are you from? I'm in St. Louis. St. Louis. Okay. So Living in Cleveland area, where I uh, did my undergraduate school and my medical school, uh, I think it's sort of similar to St. Louis. It's got some parks and stuff like that, but you really have to drive a long ways to hit any substantial um, climbing or wilderness areas. So that's what I was interested in. I mean, I hate to admit it. I always tell my family that that was more important than them. It's not really true, of course, but. See, when I was growing up, I didn't care for climbing and stuff. But lately, the last few years, especially during this time, I've enjoyed being out there. And my friends have been telling me about these trails, we would go there, we would go hiking. And I just feel that it's so nice when you like get to the top, and you're just viewing everything, the nice landscape, and it's just breathtaking. And I think that's where I found that passion is maybe understanding it more and realizing there's a lot more than city life. There's a lot more with nature and things like that. So somehow it's important and it's visceral and it's, uh, it's uh, vital to your animal parts, you know, to get outdoors and do stuff. When you were growing up, was the passion for the medical field something that you always wanted to do? Or was there another direction that you were kind of wanting to go towards? Alex, I... I like a lot of people, I fell into this and my parents are both doctors. So it seemed like a natural path. It seemed like it, you know, I'd be able to support myself and all this. And I maybe am not the best personality for uh, medicine. I'm probably a better engineering personality, you know, working in the closet on something for weeks at a time. But, uh, you know, we did pretty well. I, I worked with my wife and she supplied some of the personality things that I, I, I basically was deficient in. When you were, did you feel that if you didn't follow in your parents' footstep in that kind of direction, that they wouldn't be happy with that, or they were going to be proud no matter what? <laughs> well, the answer to that is that I wasn't close to my parents and perhaps they subtly influenced me, but um, I always like to think that the, the decisions were independent. Of course, no, no kid has entirely independent uh, 
decisions. And one of my close friends has a daughter that he doesn't get along with at all. And he, she recently told him she's going in, into medicine in his field too. <laughs> you know, So we, we have more influence on our kids than we think. As you're growing up, did you have any influences or anyone that inspired you? Well, you know, I remember the athletic stuff and we, the climbing in that day and age was, um, it was independent and it wasn't like you get a lot of mentorship from anybody else. Although I did an outward bound course in North Carolina and started climbing when I was 16 and a friend of mine and I drove down, it was a big, big deal to borrow his dad's car and drive all the way from Ohio to, uh, North Carolina outward bound. Uh, and, um, so, I mean, you know, I had a wrestling coach. He was kind of a strange character, <laughs> you know, but, uh, and, you know, I went to a public high school where I backstroked through the whole thing and still did very well. So it, it just wasn't academically very challenging. I went to undergraduate school at Oberlin, which is academically challenging, but I think they've kind of gone completely crazy now with their political activities. And then I went to Case Western Medical School, and then I left the area and went out to the West Coast and did my training. Your overall undergraduate, how many years did it take you to finally get that degree? And did you ever feel like, man, I should have done something different. This is taking too long. (laughs) You know, here's the way this works in medicine. You catch the train. Maybe it's just the caboose. Maybe you grab the, the railing at the end of the caboose. But once you're on the train, it's a path that doesn't let up for sometimes the rest of your life. And I just retired two years ago and I feel like I've been let out of jail. I mean, I've got time to think and I've got time to write and study things that, that are different than the all consuming medical uh, stuff. I mean, when in any specialty field, you, you know, you've got to run part of your business, even when you're working for somebody and you have all these annoying academics that are constantly, um, you know, and you try not to make any mistakes. And I mean, it's, it's consuming, it's consuming. Um, so that's, that's been my story with medicine, but the last two years have been great. I, two and a half years now, and I started writing two years before that. So I'm four years into a study of medical corruption, you know, essentially healthcare corruption, which is a big subject. (laughs) You know, it's a very big subject. You can't imagine and well, I can describe it for you a little bit if you'd like. Did you know what field you wanted to go in? Uh, uh, people talk about the medical field and there's so many different paths you can go, but did you know what direction you wanted to follow? Well, um, no, <laughs> the short answer is, uh, you know, you make your decisions based on, um, immediate pressures and what seems like it's best at the time. So, I, like anyone living his life, uh, I made a series of decisions that brought me to where I am now, but I, I don't think any of it was particularly rational. I mean, I've got a, I've got a resume that's 20 pages long. I've got all this education. I've got all these, uh, you know, all these awards and everything else. Uh, but, um, I can't claim that I planned it all, (laughs) even, (laughs) even a year ahead. If you went back and did it again, would you still make the same decisions? Oh, my God. Would you go into the medical field or would you follow a different degree path? 
let, let me tell you, if I knew how corrupt the whole thing was, and there's my book, it's called Butchered by Healthcare. That's meant to be as inflammatory as possible because it's an outrageous situation. But if I had that book somehow teleported to me when I was, you know, 21 and starting medical school, I wouldn't have done it. And there are some, there are many good things about medicine. You know, it challenges you intellectually, but I mean, there are many better paths to success. And I think studying on my own, um, the fields that I wanted to study would have been better for me. I mean, it, when you're in, when you're in medicine at any point in your career, you're, you're trying to conform to, um, you know, whatever the standards are, whatever, whatever they say you should do and all these different things. And so it really was not the best thing for my personality, which is more creative. So I don't, I mean, I told my kids that I'd freaking never talk to them again if they went into medicine. <laughs> Isn't that awful? <laughs> yeah, true story. And none of them did. They under, they they listened to me for once. They don't listen very often. Was the information that you talked about in your book, and we'll talk about that later in the interview, if you knew, was that kind of information hidden or it just hadn't been unraveled yet and people didn't really un- discover the things that you talk about later? Good question. Um, the answer is that it's gotten a lot worse in the last 20 years. And when I made my decision to go into medicine, it was like more like 45 years ago. <laughs> so um, no, this is not generally appreciated. And even now, it's a big surprise for physicians to read this book. Um, they they fall out of their chair. And a lot of them suspect a lot of the um, you know, a lot of the criminal activity and everything else, but um, they, they don't, they've never seen it documented in one place. Like, like I did. I mean, I've got 500 click through references in this thing. I mean, you can't write a book like this and just libel everybody. You've got to have references and it's all derivative of other people's work. It's derivative essentially of probably 10 or 15 whistleblowers um, who are my primary sources. And, and the, those uh, men and women, um, they're gutsy, but like me, they generally retired before they opened their mouths. So we don't have a dog in the race. We can't lose our jobs or anything like that. There's a very well-known New England Journal of Medicine editor named Marsha Angle, and she just screamed about pharmaceutical companies and all this stuff for at least 15 years after she retired. I'm not sure what how much of an impact she made, but she's a prestigious author, And but she started long after she retired or maybe when she retired. I don't know. During your time getting your undergraduate and your degree, did you kind of have a social life or did you find activities that kept you not thinking about school all the time? Because definitely with the medical field, it's school intensive. Alex, you're looking at a geek and (laughs) I'm I'm much less geeky now than I was. But um, at that point, I... I always felt like I had many fewer contacts than my friends. We didn't have Facebook or any of the social media. And I had, I, I sort of stayed in my corner and worked on my projects. And, uh, you know, once you catch the medical school train, you're, uh, you're on the rails. And I mean, frankly, for me, it didn't stop until I was 65. Can you imagine? Wow. Because you're, there are pressures on you to make money, to have, you know, there are various things that happen during your career, which are difficult that you have to, you're in the middle of one fight that lasts three years, some lawsuit or some crazy thing. You can't really quit. And there's always economic pressures, whether you, you know, whether they're accurate or not, you always feel like you, you haven't, haven't done that well. And I thought 
for a while there that I was going to make a lot of money, but I was disabused of that notion. (laughs) (laughs) It was two steps forward and three steps back. I think that's a lot of people growing. They're like, oh, we're going to make so much money. And then they get out there and they're like, this is not what I thought at all. And I think that's the hard part. It's like, can you kind of put financial reward versus, versus passion reward and actually enjoying making that money instead of, oh, you're just getting the money and not really enjoying how you're getting it. It's tough. I mean, there are medicine has some profound attractions and you really, if you get into it and you feel like you need to know whole specialty fields, or sometimes people try to learn the whole thing, which is basically impossible now, and they feel responsible for their, their charges, their patients and so on. Um, but uh, it, for, for me, it was, it was just, I had a very rough time um, with a lack of sleep when I did uh, a night call and I, I do night shifts working in the emergency room and so on and so forth. And, and the, the hours that were required, even in, later on in my career, they kept me from working very, um, you know, working very much on anything else that was important to me. I, I did some climbing and I did some camping and I've got a wonderful wife and, and kids that are in their who are in their mid twenties now, but, um, it, it was just intensely pressured. And I think if I had to do over, I would attempt to take a week off every five weeks and some pathologist do, I have a friend who's a pathologist and he's done that all the way through. And he's like, he doesn't worry about anything he's he his stress goes away during that week wow i need i need to know that how he does that because i feel like if i'm on vacation it's like i'm thinking about something i'm stressing about and miles away from where i am right now well you haven't hit the burnout age right when you're in your 40s maybe um you can easily get completely fried. And if you don't take enough time off and you have to discipline yourself not to do anything, not to pick up your cell phone or computer or whatever it is now. I mean, I try to take a a digital holiday for at least a day every week. And I I frequently don't do it. You know, I just can't stand to do it. Um, But um, anyway. Learning more about reading your website during this time, you got into bodybuilding. Talk about that experience and how did you find that? Well, you know, I'm not a competitive bodybuilder, but I enjoyed bodybuilding my whole life. And I, I just not necessarily getting huge or big or anything else, although some of those pictures look okay. Um, it's just this ability to go in the gym and in 40 to 60 minutes, you know, be able to work all your skeletal muscles beautifully, you know, and the, it's super safe. If, if your listeners have never done it, the trick is, just go to these gyms and figure out the machines. Don't try any weights, uh, you know, free weights or any of that stuff because the injury potential and the technique uh, requirements are higher. Um, but just just go through there and just do one set of 15 different exercises and then march right out of that gym after 40 minutes. And if you do that consistently two to three days a week, even for a half an hour, you'll see wonderful changes. You'll be healthier. Your aerobic capacity increases with just... Um, lifting. And, uh, I mean, it really is, it, it's been a passion of my life. My, uh, my shoulders are sort of shot now. I think it's due to the liposuction. <laughs> so, so I can still deadlift and stuff like that, but not very, you know, not, not heavy. I'm 68. I'm, I'm completely over the hill. Was that something that you loved 
being involved in over the years and still like not being at that competitive level, but you're still able to see the transition that you're making, see what you are able to do over time and just enjoy that process more. It's great, Alex. I, I recommend I over a certain age, maybe 50 it's required. It's not optional. And if you do that, you're going to be much healthier. You're you, you won't have as much back pain. I also did at least a decade of hot yoga, you know, Bikram yoga, which is crazy. I mean, that's that, that, that darn place is like a cult. And I was a cult card carrying cult member and it got hotter and hotter and hotter in that room until it's just, they haul people out by their heels sometimes. And it's, it's not a hard workout if you do it out of the heat, but you do it in the heat and it's like, you can, barely stand up and barely keep going. I mean, that's how crazy it is. So I, I did that. I did judo as a kid. I still watch judo videos on YouTube and, uh, and I, I've had a wonderful, the climbing was the best though. I mean, the, the climbing, you know, it gives you, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a, a, a self building exercise, you know, it's a confidence building exercise. And, uh, uh, I, I loved it. I climbed all over the country a little bit outside. Talking about being a cosmetic surgeon, what was the most challenging part of that job for you? There's one thing that was the most challenging, Alex, and it, it was and it was the women, and it was oh. 85 or 90 percent women, right? <laughs> women are tough, and so I fortunately I had a wonderful wife to help me, and she would uh, sniff out all the the problems with the patients, but. Um, the, the main trick in cosmetic surgery is trying to eliminate the nut jobs up front, because there are a lot of people who will never, ever be happy with anything you do. And, you know, oftentimes a woman has a better nose for it than a man. And being a geek, my nose for it really wasn't very good. (laughs) Yeah. They would manipulate me and get me to do things that, you know, do surgeries that had low probabilities of success or moderate probability. You want to be able to do everything you do. You want to hit a home run on and you want to turn down the things that don't work as well. You know, like there's this surgery called butt implants. It doesn't work at all. I never did it. You, you know, even a blind mole, it, 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 my, uh, one of my medical residents says, Yoho, he says, even a blind squirrel finds a nut occasionally. Well, even I could figure out that that was stupid surgery. It was just, you know, it had a complication rate, probably 50%. Things had to be taken out or whatever, you know, it was just, and the cosmetic result wasn't good either. So, so that's the trick with the cosmetic surgery is patient selection. That's an old story to every, to everyone in my field, but maybe it's new to you. Do you feel that there's a lot of shows nowadays that talk about plastic surgery and cosmetic surgery and things like that, that kind of maybe get people thinking like, oh, well, they did it on TV. I think I can get that too. Or during the time when you were doing it, it was good that those TV shows weren't around because people weren't really coming in for maybe actual reasonings or things that need to be proceeded on. You know, it's just gotten crazier and crazier and crazier and crazier. And the 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 uh, aesthetic of beauty has turned into, you know, duck lips and mm-hmm. breasts that are incredibly large and a whole bunch of other stuff that isn't, you know, for an older person's sensibility like me, it's not attractive at all. But I guess, I guess the younger ones uh, find it uh, enticing. Uh, and, 
you know, the question is, is what do you do for these women when they come in? Do you do something that you don't like, but they do, they do like, and you have to be sure that they're going to be like, they're going to like it later. <laughs> so that's the hard part. You know, it, it really helps to deal with reasonable people. And, and there's a lot of people that aren't reasonable. You know, they, they've, they, like you say, they've seen all these, all this stuff on TV and yeah, it's crazy. I, I think it's, a, especially with social media nowadays, people see, oh, this person looks like this. How am I going to transform myself into that? And you talked about exercise, nutrition, thing, health and like that. And that's usually the way that people take that route. But they kind of take those extreme measures and that's when they get under the knife and things like that. And it shows like sometimes it doesn't work how they want to because of the healing process or maybe it just wasn't the right fit for that person. So definitely talking about these shows, it's just it's making people think a lot of times a hard chance that it's going to happen the way that it's supposed to happen. You know, you see the doctors have a conflict of interest and the the you know, you make more money when you operate more and you're tempted into surgeries that are not as high percentage satisfaction rate. And so that's, I mean, it's critical, but it's so hard to see that when maybe your schedule isn't full or you you know what I mean? So, and I'm not talking specifically about myself. Everyone has got the same problem. Was that something that you were all about where making sure that it's right for the customer, not the financial aspect of money in your pocket? You you try, um, but Cicero said it best, and this is part of my presentation on Butchered by Healthcare. And he said, nothing is so strongly fortified that it cannot be taken with money. So you're, you're, uh, you're making money on a per case basis and it's impossible to weed out your interests from the patient's interests for anyone. Mm-hmm. And even a fee for service where they pay you per office visit, the temptation is to schedule more office visits or schedule more procedures or, or whatever it is. Um, the, 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 this fee for service thing has been a failure and we spend twice what other countries do on medical care per capita, twice what Canada, England, Australia, France spend on healthcare. We spend 20% of our gross domestic product on healthcare and they spend 10. So, I mean, that's part of the conflict. That's part of the reason is we have this perverse blend of socialism and capitalism that just has been horrible for us. I mean, it's just been horrible. The the standards have all dropped in the, uh, the, um, I mean, it just doesn't work. What's the most rewarding part about that job for you? The cosmetic surgery? Yes. Well, I got into bioidentical hormones early and actually it was not even a cosmetic surgery. And I eventually wrote this book, which is hormone secrets about bioidentical hormones. And uh, this here's a teaser about that book, um, which you're going to have trouble believing unless you look at an appendix. And that is that we could probably prevent up to 80% of Alzheimer's if all our women got on estrogen at the time of the change of life or menopause. Now you probably have friends or family or someone that's suffered with Alzheimer's. It's the most expensive condition in America if you count the long-term care costs. So it's an unbelievable thing. But if if these women would just get on estrogen, they'd be fine. And I, I most of them would be fine. And I actually I wanted to emphasize that point. So I hard printed at the end of the book in appendix C, I printed 
75 references to uh, that were applicable to that. So, I mean, that's just one of the many, many, many hundreds of things that work. The, the, the reason why I got into this is the, the, the reason what, what brought me into the whole healthcare corruption thing was I saw all these problems with hormone care. And the problem is these drugs are not patentable. In other words, you cannot make the $1,000 a pill profit because you're going to compete with the generic manufacturers and the compounding pharmacies. So these things have been run down by a sort of a cabal between the FDA, which is entirely a creature of pharma, and, um, and the pharmaceutical companies. And now we have what's called black box warnings on progesterone, estrogen, and testosterone, claiming that they cause strokes and heart disease and all kinds of other stuff. I mean, it's, it's the most outrageous thing. We have over 100 years experience with thyroid, 120 years, right? Pork thyroid. We have 90 years experience with testosterone and estrogen. I mean, these things are well known. We, we've worked out the mechanisms of action and they have profoundly positive effects and they should be used widely, but they're not because of all the wall of lies and prevarications from the pharmaceutical industry in order to pump up their uh, current profit. For example, to claim the, uh, the vaccine should be given to children, right? I mean, is that insane or what? When you were going through, like learning all this information, were you planning on writing a book at that time? Or were you just trying to document things so that you were learning the information could help in the future? Alex, the physicians are trained to be information vacuums, right? So we, we go to conferences every month sometimes, and we, we get, you know, binders filled with all kinds of stuff and you're supposed to know it. And you, you know, most of the time you got a pretty good idea. And so I started going to these hormone seminars at least 20 years ago, maybe 25. And I've gradually got more and more interested in it. And I started, I felt so bad for my patients because as I got older, they were getting older too. And they all had menopause symptoms. So they, um, I started treating their menopause symptoms and I realized it had a lot of health benefits too. And I, I trained and trained and I offered it to them and I didn't even charge them. I mean, they were paying me $5,000 for a breast dog. I mean, that's, that's three quarters overhead, but it's still a lot of money. And it, it was only a little bit of extra work to uh, help them and write prescriptions for their menopause drugs. So, I mean, I got these great results. They're just, the women just do backflips when they get on this stuff, when they're over 50. I mean, they, my wife thinks that the women over 50, the, the, the biggest cause of divorce over 50 is these menopausal symptoms in the women because they're just miserable and they often don't realize it's all just hormonal. They think it's existential or they think they have situational problems you give them a little estrogen and progesterone and testosterone, and they feel like they did 30 years before, you know, for the most part. During this time as a surgeon, what made you want to transfer over to an emergency physician? Or were you doing both at the same time? No, that was just, it was a, uh, a life, life happens when you're looking the other way kind of a thing. I, I was, and I, I trained actually in internal medicine and dermatology briefly. And then I trained in emergency medicine and practiced emergency medicine for several years, went on to do family practice. I know it sounds crazy, but I did family practice for a few years with another fellow. And I 
gradually acquired the cosmetic surgery skills through uh, various organizations. And it was, I was going to one of those meetings every month for years, maybe a decade. And so I picked up, I picked up some pretty good skills. I was, uh, you know, I was sort of a specialist in breast augmentation through the belly button and liposuction. And my skills were probably less uh, perfect than facelift. Was this the time where you moved to California or you head to the West Coast? Was no, no I've you- been there. I came here to train, right? I came here to train. And then I, then I, I went in, in Pasadena. I worked in family practice with a friend of mine. And then, then, and, uh, you know, I, I trained at County USC and Huntington Memorial Hospital in emergency medicine. And then we, we exited stage left and went into a family practice. And then, then I was working by myself with my wife and then we, I gradually acquired these skills of of the cosmetic surgery. Looking at your overall um, career with medical in the medical field, would it change anything differently if you weren't in California or if you did it in a different state when maybe like the way the customers are or the patients are things like that? That's a great question. That's a great question. People inside, outside of it don't really understand that. No, this is intensely competitive. It's intensely litigious. And I, I'm a straightforward kind of a character. And I certainly would have, uh, I, my fantasy is that I would have done a little better in the Midwest where I grew up. But, uh, and some of my friends made a lot of money. And we we're, this is so competitive in LA that, that it, it just wasn't possible. <coughs> I just think it with LA, it's like, you know, that people are getting surgeries and the cosmetic field and all that, that when you go to these other States, we know that they're there. It's just, it's not like you see a doctor's <laughs> office almost on every street. Basically. I think maybe that's how social media has played an effect or the way that that cities are growing in California, that it's changing how the perception of this industry basically yeah, I don't know the answer to that for sure, but it's always been my impression that that everybody else is cosmetic surgery crazy too in the other states, and it just was a little nastier game here because of the competitors and the lawyers and everything else. It was just a little tougher. But you know, that said, my kids got to grow up in California. They went to prep schools here. They got out and went to good colleges. You know. <laughs> When you retired or you stopped, said, this is the end, I'm ready to move on, go on that next journey. Was it a a kind of relief where you're like, I can go enjoy more? Or do you still have that kind of grit feeling like, okay, maybe I still could do it still? Alex, I'm working 40 to 60 hours a week still on my authorship projects. And now I'm trying to, uh, I'm trying to, um, make people understand the COVID story, the vaccine fraud and the, you know, the therapies that are being concealed. I mean, it's, it's, it's the most outrageous story of my uh, medical career. So that's what I'm working on now, almost full time. Although I try to promote my books and I've got Amazon ads with a contractor. It's not a moneymaker. <laughs> I made enough money. So with the uh, Medicare and the little bit of whatever it is they give you, um, I, I don't have to work, but um you know, we don't live an extravagant lifestyle. And um, so that's the story. 
when someone's listening to this interview and you want them to kind of look into your books, what's the big message if you summarize it all in one sentence or a few sentences, what you want them to learn from reading your book? <laughs> okay. Now these things, the one took three years to write and the other took a year and it's been rewritten and so on to make it easy. Um, but the main story about medical care in America is it's been co-opted by the corporations and these corporations are criminals. The uh, pharmaceutical industry, for example, has more criminal settlements than any industry in history, billions of dollars a year. And so these people, I mean, we, we, we wonder why they're trying to inject our little kids with a vaccine that kills more of them than COVID. And the reason, of course, is if they manage to get it approved for kids, they'll have unlimited shelter from any legal stuff, which I didn't understand that until the day before yesterday. But it, it just seemed inexplicable, even with a pharmaceutical company with criminal intent. And, uh, you know, the, these these companies that are making these vaccines, they are clearly criminals. And they're, it's, it's a, a sad state that we've gotten to where I, I, I can't even depend on physicians to drag us out of the mess. So I explained how the money goes around and uh, as as kind of the basics um, to understand about healthcare corruption. And then um, then what I become most interested in is this COVID cat catastrophe. So do you ever worry about the things that you talk about ever getting like backlash or the people disagreeing and kind of going against what you're viewing? Or do you feel that everyone has the right to their own views, opinions, and they all need to do the research so that they understand what's going on? Alex, do I look like a fellow who's on Twitter? No, I don't <laughs> no, know. No, 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 of course not. And do I look like I have a Facebook account? So you think I'm worried about a, a Twitter mob? No, I'm not. So you never know. You, yeah, you never, never know, know where, where you might get the backlash for things. Yeah. So I think we've reached an impasse in this country where we've got a remarkable censorship going on. And basically the the amendments, the constitutional amendments are all compromised except for the second amendment. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a horrible situation. The most important one is free speech. And we just have got to exercise that no matter what the consequences are. And we have to remind ourselves that we're not living in Hong Kong yet, right? We're not living in Hong Kong. And, I, you know, I'm a relatively small animal. So people don't, I don't think I'm going to get threatened anytime soon or anything like that. I just have been unable, despite my efforts, to get much attention. But uh, if I do, I'm going to pretty much uh, do it no matter what. I, if I do get attention and it's adverse, I don't care because this stuff's more important than I am. And I'm, I'm 68. How much longer am I going to live anyway? I mean, it's, it's, I, I never thought I'd be uh, concerned about the worldwide corruption or the, the problems in Australia. And if, if, if your listeners um, understand what's going on in Australia, they'll, I mean, that's like the, the beginning of understanding what's going on in the United States. I mean, it's freaking horrible. They, you know, the Chinese have gotten, uh, you know, they're, they're moving into Western Australia. They've got, uh, you know, Chinese signs in all the airports and they uh, they're building concentration camps for the uh, people who don't get vaccinated. And it's my belief from based on all my study that this this crazy vaccine, which was developed over such a, a quick and 
you know, I, I think it's completely fraudulent. I think it's much more dangerous than we've been led to believe because we know that there are 17 or 18,000 recorded fatalities with this. And if we had any other vaccine, it would have been kicked out after 50 fatalities. We have experience with vaccines and had a few fatalities. So, and the underreporting makes the true fatality count possibly 50 or 100,000. We don't know. And it's hard to associate um, causality with uh, somebody dropping dead three days later. If they drop dead right when they get the shot, then we're pretty sure, <laughs> you know. So, so that's that's where I'm at right now. I mean, I'm I've turned myself into a freaking social justice warrior, and it's not traditionally it's not the traditional idea of social justice. It's 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 basically I think we have to defend our we we have a, a 250 year experiment here no other country has ever done this australia is in worse trouble than we are because they they don't have as robust a system and we still have fragments of what what is remaining and we have some hope that we can we can turn this thing around but i mean it just doesn't look real good for the home team right now alex you talked about family is important to you. What's been the one thing that you have enjoyed seeing your kids grow up or like a favorite memory during these times? Well, my kids are great. And they, they had a, uh, they had a wonderful childhood and we, we worked really hard and we, you know, we had these nice houses that they, uh, they played in. And, uh, you know, I mean, I've got a, a kid that, uh, was a 5k national champion. He was eighth in the nation at the 5k. He was, he went to Brown and now he's working at Google. And I have another kid who, uh, she could have done as well as he did, but she's, she's not quite as, uh, ambitious. <laughs> that's, that's the way, way I should put it. She's the smartest one. Uh, but she's done very well. She has another, uh, high paying job. She's, they're doing great. And then another kid that's like the interpersonal genius who, uh, she she's making a lot of money and doing well too. They're all in their mid twenties. They're about your age. So what does the future look like for you? What are you hoping to accomplish personally and professionally in the next few years? Alex, I'm in the midst of a struggle and it has to be done because we're getting cannibalized by these forces. We are getting cannibalized. And if I don't do it, if, if someone like me, who's a mature physician doesn't work on this problem, Who's going to stand up? I mean, the people that are are working, uh, they have trouble doing it because they lose their jobs. But uh, it's it's an outrage of what's going on. And I thought for a long time, I thought healthcare corruption was terrible. And the fact that we weren't using the bioidentical hormones was a major problem. But I got into this COVID stuff and it, it, these companies are just, they're completely they're entitled and they are criminals and they are running over us and they're creating all these insane narratives like, you know, everybody should be vaccinated so we can save everybody. Well, the thing has confers no immunity. It doesn't save anybody. It doesn't even prevent future cases in that individual. I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it's just a crazy scene. And the idea that they can fool, fool us with this wall of propaganda, the thing that most observers don't understand that I understand so well is that the, the standard modus operandi or, or a technique that pharma uses is to turn out 
all kinds of fraudulent studies and news reports and all kinds of stuff. They use statistical frauds. They conceal studies that don't say what, what they think, what, what's good for their marketing. Like, for example, the HPV vaccine was completely rejected by Japan because they found out that 50% of the studies were concealed. Well, we didn't, we're not with it enough to do that. And this stuff is used in Europe and the United States. And you've had it. I know you have. So it, it's not that that stuff is causing a lot of fatalities. It doesn't. But it's in all likelihood useless. But we can't tell because we've never seen the data. We've never seen the real data. I, I, my general attitude towards these guys is what Nietzsche said. He said, I'm not upset that you lied to me. I'm upset that from now on, I can't believe you. Right? So we've been lied to again and again by these companies as their criminal settlements attest. And if the vaccines had a net benefit, they wouldn't conceal the facts about the studies. Okay. For example, they, they, they left out the hospitalization numbers in many of these. And it's the second most important metric after fatalities, right? They left out the hospitalization numbers, you know? I mean, it's just one of my friends, he's a really smart guy. He says, I think it works, but I can't really tell without seeing the complete data. And I, I, I think that it, it obviously doesn't work or they would have shown us all that. I don't think any of it works. And, and the, the areas where it's obvious it doesn't work are the little kids. Probably anybody under 50, it's obvious that it doesn't have a net benefit. The final question I'll ask you for someone that's listening to this interview based on your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles, accomplish their goals and rise to the challenge? That's an easy one. That's an easy one. You just got to hustle the whole time, Alex. You can never quit. And I know that's an old answer, but it's absolutely true. And you can't let yourself be discouraged by some crazy things that happen to you or uh, negative things that happen to you. You just got to pick yourself up and, and go for it again. And that you can't be beat as long as you don't give up. That's the story. That's a, that's a thing in a nutshell. No, I, it's, it, you said it's an old tale and it's like, I still u- utilize that every single day because hustle, never give up. It's things that we can all live by. And it makes you want to go out there and do more and accomplish more when you think of those words and you don't give up on what you want to achieve. Every, every morning is a new day and yep. you, you may be very discouraged at night, but when you wake up, you, you should get back on the horse, take enough time off too. And that way you don't burn out. You're, you're at 25, nobody's burned out, but <laughs> in 10 or 15 years, there'll be a few that have been burned out and you, you might be one of them. So be careful. Well, Robert, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. You're inspiring so many people, and we're excited to see what the future looks like for you. Thank, thanks so much, Alex. I enjoyed uh, talking to you. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow and subscribe on all major audio platforms, and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to get a full-length episode in video format. What path will you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.